Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of the Substantial Life Podcast. I'm Jop Foster. I'm Pierre Leroux. I'm Karne van Heerden. Today we will be continuing our discussion on difficult topics in the Christian faith. Last week we spoke about the problem of evil, the question of why does an all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God allow evil in this world. Today we will be discussing divine hiddenness, or the perspective that some people have that God hides himself. We will go into more detail with that soon. We are joined by Karnu van Heerden. He has a master's degree in theology specializing in apologetics. We're glad that you're here. Thank you. It's an honor to be here again with you guys. I'm looking forward to today's discussion. So how would we think about divine hiddenness? I think, I think for some of our listeners, this is a new term, but I think for everyone that's experientially quite close to our hearts. Hmm. So what is meant by divine hiddenness? Yes. Now, um, if we talk about divine hiddenness, like in all of our discussions, I think it's important to get a good grip of what the argument is actually saying. Um, because the argument of divine hiddenness is one of the newer arguments uh, against the existence of God. It's closely linked with the problem of evil. And for example, uh, like the problem of evil, it has a logical and an emotional angle. With the emotional or existential angle, it's the whole feeling of where is God? God, we don't always feel or experience that God is with us or um, present in our lives or in our hearts. And so that's sort of the existential emotional side, which is very important. But I think for our purposes today, I think it would be good to focus first on the logical side of it all. So the logical side, um, basically, it's um, there's a guy, what's it, um, J.L., I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, Schellenberg, <laughs> if, if that is incorrect, I apologize. But Schellenberg, he has a, um, a book on divine hiddenness he brought out um, a few years back, which has sort of become like the standard sort of formulation of the problem of divine hiddenness. So, um, yeah, if I may, I, I have a syllogism right here that we can um, go through. It's like uh, premise one, as a, if there is a God, then he is perfectly loving. If a perfectly loving God exists, then, oh yeah, that, this is premise two now. If a perfectly loving God exists, then the reasonable non-belief does not occur. Premise three, but reasonable non-belief does occur therefore no perfectly loving god exists okay so that's pretty much a summary of of his argument yes sure. so the argument states that if god is perfectly loving he would reveal himself in such a way that there would be no one that do not believe in him with good reason that's what's meant by reasonable non-belief so the argument makes space for unreasonable non-belief the argument assumes that there are people who have good reason not to believe in god mm. well, what are your thoughts on that mm. argument yes well it seems to be quite a you know powerful argument initially because it's um yeah one could think about um, people you know we meet people in our everyday lives and they seem to be open-minded and um, be to believing things and so 
you might think, well, if they just had a strong enough case for this and that, maybe they would believe or not. But the problem with this argument is that there's an assumption behind premise two or th and three in the sense that there isn't sufficient evidence for the Christian worldview um, at this point to actually convince people. Uh, a question I would have is people who would advocate for this argument, what do they mean by evidence? Yes, that's a good question, because I think that would be the determining factor in the discussion. Because you could just ask them, what evidence would you be willing to accept to convince convince you? Because it's going to be really important to know that, because you, you would get people, and I would use Richard Dawkins as an example, um, and which he, he was in an interview, and they asked him, uh, he was with Peter Bogosian, yes, and Peter Bogosian also being an atheist, but Peter Bogosian is very interesting. He uh, is much more open-minded and more open to dialogue, unlike Mr. Dawkins. Uh, but um, he asked Richard Dawkins, is there any evidence whatsoever that uh, you would, may receive that may change your mind? And he said, you know, he knows it cuts against the scientific grain because that's what you should do as a scientist, be open to new explanatory hypotheses and stuff like that. But he said no pretty much in in as much words and so again yeah it's good to some people might appear you know open-minded that they have an argument against the position but fundamentally if you ask them is there anything that can convince you if they say no well <laughs> they well the conversation is just going to end there they the will is resisting um and in another sense um just as another thing where people mention sort of like um uh, there was a debate between an atheist and Dr. William Lane Craig and this guy on the resurrection of Jesus. And this guy kept bringing up the hallucination hypothesis. And Dr. Craig just pointed, uh, caught him with a pointed question and he asked him, is there anything that can be presented in Christian theism that would make you change your mind? And he says, well, if God were to appear to me in a cloud and he would shout down from the heaven, hey, you know, I am God, worship me, you better repent now, da 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 da. And so Dr. Craig, being very observant, he says, well, basically, on your own criteria for dismissing the resurrection, you would just dismiss that as a hallucination. So, yeah, yeah, that's a very good question, I think, to open with when you're discussing divine hiddenness. I've heard many atheists argue that as you've said, why doesn't God just reveal himself more explicitly, like just right in the clouds that I am God, I am here, mm. worship me. Um, why is it that when we speak of evidence, it, we don't speak of evidence of that sort? Mm. I think one difficulty in this discussion often is people are kind of subjective on what they define as evidence. Mm. And I think the other sciences are helpful for us in this regard. Because if I say, as a physicist, general relativity is false, I cannot make up a criterion for the truth or falsehood of a theory and just say, see, it doesn't appeal to that, you know, Einstein, I should see whatever prediction from GR. Mm. There's this objectivity in the natural sciences regarding what constitutes evidence. And I think that would be helpful in this discussion. Mm. One of the basic objectivity tests for truth is basic logic. Are the premises well-defined? Do the conclusions follow from the premises? If the premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. That logic is always the case. 
our whole world is based on this type of logic. Geometry is based on this type of logic. Natural sciences is based on this type of logic. And even Christian faith is based on propositions with logical syllogisms. And logic is so foundational to the way we think that many people, when they hear that initially, would think, well, isn't that making Christianity to some extent intellectualist? When, when it says that Paul went into the synagogues and reasoned with the Jews, doesn't that like exclude people who weren't reasoning? But I, I, I think that mis, misconstrues it because for one reason, for example, that, that individual is using logic to argue against it. So we see that logic, as you've said, Job, is so fundamental to the way we think and, and are as human beings and the way that reality works. And we, as Christians, would argue as part of God's nature himself that at least through reason, when we have a working mind, we would be able to some extent come to the existence of God. And so to clarify what I think we should understand of evidence, I'm not saying all proponents of divine hiddenness do see this as evidence, but I do believe some do. Not enough evidence would mean that there's not enough backing for any of the syllogistic arguments for God's existence. For example, there's the Kalam cosmological argument that says the universe began to exist. Uh, whatever began to exist must have a cause. Therefore, the universe must have a cause. Or the argument from the resurrection or the ontological argument or the various apologetic arguments. Someone who says there's not sufficient evidence actually needs to show that there's not enough evidence for the propositions in those arguments yes because there's an there's an assumption that those arguments aren't valid the thing is those arguments cannot just be hand waved there are plenty of arguments in favor of christian theism drawn from arguments for the reliability of the bible you know and special revelation and the arguments of the like the classical arguments for god's existence and even more and so non-believers would need to contend that, um, you know, objectively, that the arguments of Christianity are not enough to support the truth of the Christian faith. Because the thing is, there's sort of, in the divine hiddenness, and I'm not saying all of them say this, but there's sort of this gist of a lack of obviousness of God. But a lack of obviousness does not mean that good evidence does not exist. You know, I could, you know, I'm not... I might not, uh, you know, specialize in a specific field like physics, you know, and I might not be aware of some of the stuff in what's happening in quantum theory and stuff. But just because that's not obvious to me, that that doesn't mean that the uh, arguments made for the different hypotheses aren't good or aren't there. That's why Job, I would go to you and ask you, hey, tell me more about this stuff. Just because I don't you know, perceive it doesn't mean it's there because that fundamentally it, it will lead to uh, argumentum ad ignoratium, argument from ignorance. Just because I don't know or I don't perceive does not mean that it is not true or it's not there or it, that it's not important. It would then seem as if the argument from divine hiddenness is actually saddling the atheist with quite a huge ex um, epistemic load. Like the amount of evidence you need to gather to show that there is no good evidence or no good reason to believe in God is quite huge. You'll need to be almost an expert in every possible field of knowledge 
Yeah, you're going to have to undercut every single argument that's been made for Christian theism and, and then some. And so I, even the most renowned atheists like, um, you know, guys like Graham Oppie, which I consider is one of the best atheistic thinkers ever. Um, you know, there's even an acknowledgement there of ma like making, uh, tackling the arguments for the existence of God and all these arguments, but also providing an argument for your own worldview. He, he is aware of the epistemic load. So if you listen to some of his discussions, which is fascinating, he's very mindful of that and very, that's why he's very pointed. And he, he actually, in a discussion, I think with, um, uh, was it with Tim McGrew, I believe, but he, for example, concedes the contingency argument, but he says he doesn't think it may be God, necessarily. So there's sort of an acknowledgement that these arguments have weight, but then it's sort of a clincher still. Well, it doesn't have to be God. It could be something else. So, um, but yeah. I think the divine hiddenness argument from Christians and non-Christians, actually, there has two parts. There is two parts of it. The one is, why does God hide himself from certain people groups? So they would say, for example, the typical one is, what about a Hindu boy in India that has never heard of Christ and so can therefore not come to salvation? Is God not being unfair to him? Mm. And then the other question would be, if I'm in a Christian country or a country where the Bible is relatively open, which is many countries in the world at this moment, but even people would speak about, if I'm in a Christian country, why don't I experience God? That's another thing that I've often heard. People might say, I've not experienced God as some Christians claim to have experienced God. What would we say first to the Hindu one and then to the other one? So I think to the Hindu one, that's ultimately a question, one, about God's revelation in nature or his general revelation, and then two, his justice. So I think in, in regards to his revelation, at least as Christians from Scripture, we believe that God does give enough revelation for every individual to know that he is there. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why religion is so prominent across the world. Mm -hmm. At least that it seems, even as some atheists would admit, it appears to be designed. It appears to have purpose or some God made it. Mm -hmm. So at least... Nature seems to prickle our thoughts into the direction of the existence of a God. And that leads to the second part, I think, regarding God's justice. We see through scripture, um, if you think of, of the times when Jesus said, it would be more bearable to X people than for Y people. X people are usually those who have more knowledge and experience of God, who know better, have maybe special revelation like scripture, than for whoever people group Y is. That people are usually people who had less revelation, less knowledge of God, less experience, and so on. Um, and I think from that we can deduce a principle that God judges based on every individual's experience, their knowledge of Him, and the chances they had to come to salvation in Him. So in that case, I think there's actually a great consolation for us and Christians in God's judgment, because that means that we will be judged by the being who is justice himself. So, 
and he's unchanging, so that means he's not going to have an arbitrary stra- standard of justice. Mm-hmm. But he's all loving as an infinite being, means meaning he loves each one of us more than any other individual could possibly love them. The person making the argument is trying to say, well, they love these people so much, so how does a God be? How can a God be so unjust? But God, as an infinite being, would be more loving towards that person. And from Scripture, we know that He desires salvation for every single person. So He's all knowing. He's all loving towards this person, and in His all knowingness, He would know exactly how many opportunities this person had for salvation, whether they had opportunities or not. And then, from special from general revelation, we want to say that at least these people had enough reason to come to believe. So ultimately, judgment will be by the most fair being in the universe who knows everything about that person and loves them more than any one of us yeah. and who wants them to have a relationship with him. So I don't think that would be a formidable objection towards Christianity because, in fact, in the very action of, of judgment, we see love. We see the most love and the most justice. Just as a, um, a pointer there, uh, that sometimes, and a friend of mine, Michael Willenborg, he actually, if you want to know more about the discussion of divine hiddenness, on the Rasha Christi South Africa YouTube channel, he does a, he had, we had a YouTube interview with him on the divine hiddenness. So if you can really check that out, it's really, really good. Um, but he actually uh, also, I discussed with him one time and he said maybe sometimes God's divine hiddenness is an act of grace in the sense knowing like Pierre already um, showed that um, more revelation increases more accountability. And we see this across scripture. I can mention a few passages here in Matthew 11, uh, Matthew 23. Yeah, it's Matthew 11 verse 21 to 22 specifically, Matthew 23 verse 13 to 15. John 12, verse 47 to 48, Luke 12, verse 47 to 48, and then uh, James 3, verse 1. So like, just with example, I like James 3, verse 1, because it's sort of a reminder, especially if you serve in the church. It says, "Don't brothers, do not desire to become teachers, for you'll be judged more strictly. More strictly. So there seems to be levels of judgment. And that passage in Luke chapter 12 because um, Mike is a very interesting way of summarizing this principle. He calls it the Spider-Man principle, which is with great power comes great responsibility. But, he's, but it's actually originally the Jesus principle, because Jesus says in the Luke 12 passage, he says, to him who more has been given, more will be required. And he make, there's a whole parable there of the servant and the head servant looking over the lesser servants. And when the master is away, the head servants, you know, he's just doing a lot of stuff he shouldn't, abusing his power. And so when the master come back, both the main servant and the other servants both receive judgment. It's interesting how Jesus speaks about that. But it says the less the, the servants under the head servant will have a lesser punishment, a lesser beating. 
um, but they because but because they're still implicated in the actions of the higher servant, the master servant, um, they are still punished. But the master, the whole thing, the master servant himself, the head servant, will receive the most severe punishment because of his knowledge and his position and his authority. So um, I think. Um, that's definitely a thing that we need to consider. And the other thing is as well, because what's happening, some people just assume, okay, people are just stuck, you know, and they haven't heard or whatever. And it's like, you read some very interesting things in the history of the church about uh, yeah, how God, if we struggle as people to go out and do missions amongst people, we need to hear the gospel. Um God can make a plan. There's a phenomenon that's happening in uh, the Middle Eastern countries, uh, except uh, especially Iran. And this, these missionaries are just working in these Muslim countries. All of a sudden, large Muslim families appear at their door. They think these Muslims know where they are. They're coming to stone them. No. And these Muslims say, no, Isa, he, Jesus, has appeared to us in dreams. And he told us to come here. And that's very interesting that, um, yeah, that Jesus is appearing to these Muslims and he's telling them to go to these pastors or missionaries and sort of like if God is going to bring people to him, I don't think there's going to, he's not going to be, there's not going to be anything obstructing him to doing that. If you're wondering about this story, we will have a link in the description below. Yes. There's a, there's a lot here. I, I think on the one hand, we do not know what God does in his church. So we don't necessarily know if God is actually reaching out to people that don't have missionary access. Secondly, we cannot look into people's hearts to know whether or not God has revealed himself. And then often we lie to ourselves. We might say, no, God didn't give enough evidence. But then we either haven't looked or we have looked, but we misinterpreted the evidence, made some logical fallacy, etc., etc., I want to encourage you what has really broken up the struggle for me in terms of faith and whether or not God exists and which religion is true, etc., etc., is the fact that logic is a thing, that there is truth and there is falsehood and that our entire way of living is built on this idea. I mean, you can't build a car if you don't assume logic. So you can look at the syllogisms, you can look at the logical form of the different arguments and you can try to either find a fallacy in the argumentation or a falsehood in the propositions and if you want to be intellectually honest that is the work you need to do and I would encourage you to do that if you yourself are a Christian I would encourage you check out the arguments for other faiths if there are check out the arguments for unbelief and see whether or not their arguments hold water if you are a skeptic Check out the arguments for Christian theism and see if you can find either false propositions or fallacies. And if you do that, you would do us a great favor by sending us your questions and thoughts in that regard. Either post it on the Facebook, on the Instagram, you can comment or send us a personal message. And so this search is not impossible. If you feel like you want an intellectually robust faith, you can do the work. It's actually not so crazy. But then also we can see clearly in, in scripture and in the teachings of the church father that one needs not a robust faith to be saved. The scripture makes it clear that it is faith that saves you. Faith and trust in God and in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. 
That is all that is required of us. For example, the work of Alvin Plantinga and which William Lane Craig has also taken up is the difference between justified belief and knowing that your belief is justified. And the difference is basically between someone who, for example, let's say experiences the actual indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is experiential, and that would be enough reason for that person to have a justified belief. You could know Christianity is true and be a Christian and have faith and have a relationship with God and go to heaven. And he would be justified in his belief. But Christianity as a religion and the fact that you are going to heaven is and so on is not true because you had the religious experience. Rather, it is true because God actually exists. Jesus was a historical person. He actually died on the cross under Pontius Pilate. Pilate rose from the dead and thereby gave us a way to have relationship with God. So there's two ideas, as Job said, the idea of how we personally can have a true, just have a justified belief and whether or not that justified belief is true. And Christianity or evaluating worldviews is different than your personal just having faith. It's more looking also towards other religions now and evaluating Christianity against them. And because, as you said, logic is a thing, there are mutually exclusive claims between religions and thereby you can cancel out certain religions. Some religions hold that the universe never had a beginning. I think we have very good scientific and philosophical reasons to believe it did. Therefore, those religions are automatically excluded. Some religions hold to an infinite plethora of finite gods, but I think we have good reasons to know that an actual infinite of that form cannot exist. Therefore, that religion is automatically ruled out. And so we can move through the religions. And there is only so many ways that the universe can exist. Either there is a god or there isn't. Either he is part of the universe or he isn't. And so on. Mm, exactly. And um, just as a sort of... Uh further comment on a theological aspect of divine hiddenness is that um, thinking on, you know, what, but it's unsatisfactory or why does God do it in this way? I say, look, well, God also doesn't want forced propositional knowledge that would lead to self-centered motives for belief. For example, out of fear or self-preservation, because it would be like, if it's like, no, but God can just show his power. And then everyone would know. And then, you know, then people would believe. And it's like, yeah, but God doesn't... Some people would believe, but they would believe just out of fear. They wouldn't believe because they actually seek God. Um, and they wouldn't actually believe because they actually seek to be united with Him and actually love Him and are thankful for His grace. Because that's the, the relationship God wants with us. A direct uh, relationship through grace and through love. Um, not through fear, because the thing, and unfortunately many Christians have made that mistake when they do evangelism, just threaten people with fear, which is just, again, it's a logical fallacy, it's an ad baculum. And, you know, God himself, he is the Logos, he will not commit such a fallacy as just to threaten people, um, you know. Um, so that's why he gives people the free will, you know, follow me or don't, and he's not going to force them if, if, if they don't. And um, again, we go back to the concept of grace and accountability. If he knows they won't believe, if he shows up in that way, 
their judgment will become worse. That's the whole thing. If we think, no, but how is this? And how do we even have an instance? We have an instance of this happening. In the Old Testament, the Jews that were taken out of Egypt. I mean, like, if you look at the miracles and the stuff that they witnessed um, on the mountain, through the ocean, and all that stuff. And in the end, they said it's better to go back to Egypt. And, <laughs> yeah, after all that, you know... They died in the desert, except Joshua and Caleb. And so, but the, their children went into the land, but they didn't. And so, um, yeah, I, it's kind of, they received the just punishment after everything that they saw, after everything that God did. Um, and it's also when they saw, they were waiting for Moses on the mountain, they were doing their thing and he came down the mountain and they feared when he came down because of the holiness. That's also showing why God was speaking to Moses on the mountain, because even when God was appearing to them through other modes, like the pillar of cloud and fire, that in itself was terrifying. So, you know, if God in his fullness would appear, that would be, it would be terrifying to, you know, to people. What's interesting is in the story of Exodus, God actually invites Moses and the whole Israelite congregation to come up. But they said, no, Moses, you go. Mm. And so it shows that sometimes God invites us to get to know him, mm. but then we turn away. Exactly. And I think in this, we, we find that that's an excellent comment by both of you, because I, I think in it, we see a false assumption in the argument from divine hiddenness. It thinks that faith in God is just thinking he exists or mm. even knowing he exists, but that's missing the entire point of Christianity. Christianity is not about knowing that God exists, as Hebrews says, if I remember correctly, Hebrews 11, to, for him who would have faith in God, he must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek after him. Those are two preconditions. To believe that God exists and that he rewards people, for example, with faith or with relationship with him, is preconditions before you even have faith. It's not having faith is thinking that God exists. It's mm. You know God exists, that's before you even start having faith, but then putting your trust into in God and then having relationship with Him. Mm. Then you then you have faith, mm. as for example Abraham had, who believed God and it was counted to him yeah. as righteousness. Not he knew God existed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Mm. He believed God mm. and then it was counted to righteousness. So I think it's a misunderstanding about what Christianity fundamentally teaches in the gospel. Mm. The, the argument is based on a misunderstanding of Christianity. Mm. Yeah, because the thing is how Christianity understands faith, you know, and, and we look at Greek pistis, it's trust. Um, and so, I mean, Matthew 7, Jesus shows as much that there are people that confess that he's Lord. They've done miracles in his name. They've done all the seemingly right things that an authentic Christian should do. But what does he tell them? Go away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, I don't know you. Because the interesting, the key to unlocking that passage, Jesus says, on that day, on the day of judgment, they are using these things to justify why they should be let in with, with Christ and the new kingdom. And they, the whole thing is, they missed the whole point of the gospel. They never had a relationship with Christ and desire to know him. They just did the right things and hoped they made it. And they put the trust in their own abilities, not to trust in Christ. And the thing is, um, there's also a pastoral element to this 
and thinking why does divine hiddenness take place and you know um, if you're listening and you're a Christian this is very relevant um, especially because the thing is um, God seeks our sanctification so sometimes he might feel distant or not even there because he's actually trying to cultivate trust in him and um, it's interesting I always remember this analogy it's from the screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis and in Screwtape later, Screwtape is a demon writing to Wormwood, his nephew, who's another demon. And they're discussing in the whole book how to tempt people. If you can read that book, do. It is excellent. But C.S. Lewis has a very good observation. And when he, Screwtape talks about how God, or they call him the enemy, dwells with the humans or the patients. Um, and, he, and he says it's frustrating. Because in the beginning... You know, he, they're like infants. New believers are like infants. And if you've ever seen infants, you know, mom and dad are always close by constantly. But as the infant grows up, and in order for the infant to become strong and to become more independent, mom and dad need to give a bit more space. When you're teaching them to walk, you know, you're, you're standing behind him, but he needs to stand up on his own and he needs to walk to the other side of the room. And they're riding bicycle, you're right behind him, but they need to keep going for, and they will go further and further away by the time they're like, hey mom, dad, I'm doing that. They look behind, dad is on the other side of the road, you know, way far behind. But they're actually doing it. And I think that's a good analogy. C.S. Lewis is um, painting for us how God works with us. Sometimes he, it feels like he's distancing himself, but he's actually doing that so that we may grow and mature and have more trust in him. Uh, and so, and the thing is, you need don't take him off on the experience and the feeling because that's the whole thing it fades because i think god god knows and we should know that just relying on the pure experience is fickle because the experiences just change completely and we are tossed to and fro it's chaotic and god doesn't want that for us so you know god is doing that in this way to bring about a true change in us. And he wants us to take him on his word. Because building the trust would mean. And also knowing him and his character. We put trust in him and his character. So when he ultimately says. I will never leave you. Nor forsake you. If you want to put that in a logical proposition form. That's a universal negative. Never. Never ever ever will God leave you or forsake you. That is what he is saying. The unchangeable being of the universe. Who cannot lie who keeps to his word. So even if you feel distant, even if it doesn't feel God is there, even if it feels like you're just lost, that doesn't mean that you are. God is there because take him on his word that he, uh, he will never leave you and forsake you. And I mean, like if you, <laughs> that's one of the things that got me through it. You know, I, I can't say, you know, it's just a woo, roller coaster, I, yeah, experiencing God there many times in my life. Why it's just darkness and emptiness but the only thing that kept me going is trusting and taking the lord on his word and coming back to the logic of it because i, I if i can't argue against him and against his word because i'm gonna have to prove logically that he's a liar do not trust him and not take him on his word but i can't do that it's so difficult. i'm obligated to still trust in him yeah it's difficult to try and prove falsity for him who is truth himself exactly yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, thank you for that, Carney. Yeah, and that concludes our discussion on divine hiddenness. If you have any questions or comments, please send it to us.
We actually got a listener question about last week's episode on the problem of evil. Pierre, would you read it for us? Hey brother, I just finished listening to the episode on the problem of evil and I have a question. The Bible puts forward hell as a punishment for non-believers and sinners, with hell being suffering. Some would believe that suffering is eternal whilst others hold it's just for a finite period, but all agree that there's terrible suffering. This is seen as the antithesis of heaven, which is more in line with God's will. So, how then can God cause suffering on earth, as we most commonly see him do in the Old Testament, and even often do in the New? And in the next life, can we hold that a loving God can directly cause suffering? This question is from Cabron Riedlingheis. He was on some of our previous episodes. This we will discuss next week. As so many of our listener questions are, this is an excellent question. And there's actually quite a lot to unpack in this. So we would like you to join us for the next episode where we will discuss the problem of suffering. And we will go a bit deeper into the problem of evil because there has been a lot of expansion on that in recent years. Thank you for listening.